just about every time I come up here now for the last several weeks, I apologize for the sermon schedule being off. And so this will be the last time I do that because I made a revised schedule for you. It's on the back table. If you follow along uh, with what we're preaching uh, each week, it's helpful for you to read the passage before we come. And I encourage you to do that. And that's why I feel so badly about the schedule being uh, so far off now. So I've made a, a revised schedule. Uh, please pick one of those up on the way out today, and uh, and you'll be all caught up for the Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. Well, it had been 50 years since the destruction of the Jerusalem temple when we come to here Ezra chapter 3. The captivity had uh, come to an end with Cyrus releasing the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem for the purpose of restoring the temple. This trip from Babylon to Jerusalem was not going to be an easy one. It would take several months, and yet 50,000 Jews packed up their families, moved to a place a thousand miles away where many of them had never been before because they were confident that God wanted them to worship there. And they were confident that God would be with them. And if worship is going to be resumed in the temple as prescribed in Leviticus and Numbers according to the way that God wants it to be done, then God was going to have to help them along the way. And that's what we're going to see in our text uh, this morning. Ezra, we're going to cover chapters 3 and 4, but I'm just going to read the first chapter to start with. Ezra chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written and offered, the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord." From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission that that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers, uh, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. 
Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Our progress in God's work is necessary but it's also often interrupted by external opposition, which we're going to see when we come to chapter 4. Here we see two main uh, themes in these two chapters. First, we see initial success, as we've just read here in chapter 3. And then we're going to see this, uh, this ongoing opposition in chapter 4. And that's why I say that our progress in God's work is often interrupted by external opposition, and so we need to know what to do with that. How are we supposed to respond when external opposition comes? Well, let's first look at this initial success in chapter 3. In verses 1 to 7, we see that the worship of God is restored through the resumption of sacrifices. They resume the sacrifices there at the bronze altar. Before the foundation of the temple is restored, worship must be restored as the very centerpiece of the Jewish Levitical system. And that was at the bronze altar. They recognized that they they were not going to just set up the altar and then wait to worship God at the end of that. They wanted to make that the first thing that they did. And that's exactly what they do. They begin with the bronze altar here in verses 1 to 7. This initial success was led by the priest Jeshua and the Jewish governor Zerubbabel. And the date of this success, according to... What we know from history is October 5th, 537 B.C. It actually happened on the very first day of the Jewish New Year, known as Rosh Hashanah. And it was a day of great celebration. They had returned to Jerusalem three months earlier, and now they're celebrating the New Year with these sacrifices. They're restoring worship at the temple, although the temple is not rebuilt. The, the, uh, the bronze altar is. In addition to celebrating the New Year, uh, they also celebrate the, the Day of Atonement. Nine days later, on October 14th, the ninth day of the first month or the tenth day of the first month is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So there would be sacrifices that were needed for that. And then on the 19th of October of that same year, they would celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast... You see that in verse 4. Uh, they celebrated the Feast of Booths or if you look in, in your, the margin of your Bible, you'll see it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is where they would set up these temporary tabernacles to remind them of how God had led them out of Egypt through these tents that they had to stay in. And the Jews basically will stay in tents for a whole week and offer sacrifices to God during this time. And so they they have these three great celebrations that take place in this first month of their Jewish New Year, which is our October This initial success was a huge deal for three reasons. Number one, it had been 50 years since the temple was destroyed. 
It had been 50 years since the temple had been destroyed. Verses 1-3, to we see that these people had, had not been back to this place. Some people had never seen this place. The exiles were a thousand miles away. That's why they're exiles. They were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians to the city of Babylon. And they're surrounded there in Babylon by pagan temples and pagan people serving pagan gods. And so they were far away. And it had been 50 years since that temple had been destroyed. And 70 years for, for since the time that some of them had actually been back to Jerusalem. So there were some people like Daniel, for example. He didn't come back to, the, to Jerusalem uh, at the end of his life. But other people may have done that, that, that were contemporaries of Daniel, that had been the initial exiles taken to Babylon that had now returned and are seeing the temple for the first time. And so this initial success of setting up this bronze altar, which is out in the courtyard, by the way, of the, the tabernacle, that setting this up was a huge deal. The second reason it was a huge deal was because it demanded a significant sacrifice. It demanded a significant sacrifice. Look at verse 3. So they set up the altar, the bronze altar, on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the people of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. And it goes on, and verse 5 says, afterward there was a continual burnt offering, and they had these free will offerings. End of verse 5. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings, and so on. And so you have all these offerings that are being given for the sake of these, these uh, celebrations. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, um, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. For each of these, God had prescribed what kind of animals and how many He wanted. In Numbers chapter 29, we see that on the New Year, the first day of the New Year, they were supposed to offer one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat. So there you have ten animals just for that first day of the year. On the Day of Atonement, which was where the high priest would go into the the most holy place once a year. Obviously, he couldn't now because the temple is destroyed, but this is what was typically supposed to happen. They were supposed to offer one bull, two rams, seven lambs, and two goats. And then for the Feast of Booths, that seven-day celebration of the, the, the Jews who had wandered in the wilderness, Feast of Tabernacles, God required 71 bulls, 15 rams, 105 lambs, and seven goats. So just in that short period of time, those two weeks from Rosh Hashanah to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, they were supposed to sacrifice 218 animals, not including their daily sacrifices that were required for the atonement of their sins. And I would think that if we had 218 animals of that kind, bulls, rams, lambs, and goats in this room, we would be pretty crowded. That's a lot of animals over a two-week period of time. And so this is a significant deal for Israel who had not sacrificed while they were away in exile. They come back to the temple, the place where God had given them this land, and they, the very first thing they do within a few months of being there after setting up their homes and so on is they set up this bronze altar and they let the blood flow as an atonement for their sins third reason that this initial success was a huge deal is found in verse 3. And that is that it was partially in response to fear. 
It was partially in response to fear. Let me show you this in the text. Verse 3, So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. For they were terrified. It doesn't say they set up the altar even though they were scared. And that would tell us that they were courageous people. That even though they had opposition around them and, and threats to their own lives, that they were scared and yet they still set up the altar. But that's not what the text says. It doesn't say even though, does it? It says they set up the altar for or because they were terrified. And the reason that's important is that it tells us that they recognize the way to overcome fears is for them to turn to God. Because they were scared, they set up the altar. They recognized that this project that was going to start, the rebuilding of the temple, was going to solicit serious opposition on behalf of the people who, have inhab- who had inhabited that land for the previous 70 years. You know, I, I use the example of if your grandparents were of German descent, or they actually were born in Germany, and then you were told to go back there now, and you just pack up and go. Well, well, can you just go to that land and just say, hey, this is our, this is our family's land, we're, we're taking it back. You know, you, you know uh, the saying that possession is nine-tenths of the law? I mean, yeah, try to make us get off your land. Okay, This is not a, a, an insignificant thing. When they come back to Jerusalem, it's not like they're welcomed by the people. Say, hey, here, here's your temple back. I'm so glad you came. They received much opposition. And so, because they were terrified, they restored their relationship with God by starting with this rebuilding of the altar. Well, after reestablishing the appropriate sacrifices to God, the next step was to rebuild the temple. Okay, They, they got the sacrificial system going again. The priests are all ready to go to start accepting sacrifices and offering them to God for the people and their sins. Now the next step is to restore this temple that is completely destroyed. Everything's taken out of it. All of the stones are have been left on top of another. It's, it's a huge mess. And that's what we see happening, that they begin the restoration of the temple in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon. So if we're going to start the rebuilding of the temple, we need to start ordering some supplies. And so they used some of their own money to do that. And then they put a plan in place. In verses 8 and 9, they decide, here's here's what we're going to do. Everybody that's 20 years old and and upward, verse 8, that you're going to have responsibility to help with this rebuilding of the temple. And so in the spring of 536 B.C., this is the second year, verse 8 says the second year, and then in the second month, uh, the, the work officially begins on the temple. And what we see in verse 9 is that they're united in this work. Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons. So all these signs are pointing to, to, to unity, to progress, to, to, to following God, so everything that we see here at the beginning is, is good. But these people are serious about their relationship with God. They're not going to let anything hold them back. In verses 10 to 13, they lay the foundation of the temple. This is a huge step toward rebuilding this temple. Verses 10 to 13 shows the reaction of the people once the foundation is laid. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests 
stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So here again, we just see nothing but good things that the priests are leading them in a proper direction saying, hey, we need to praise God for this this progress that we've made so far. We've made it out of captivity. Isn't this amazing? And now we've made it back to this place that we love and the place that is at the center of our worship. And so we can praise God. And that's exactly what they do. All the people praise God for His mercy. But notice uh, this mixed response in verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So you have a mixed response. You have some people, including the priests and the Levites, who are crying at the sight of this foundation being laid. And I think, uh, before I explain to you why they're weeping, you need to understand that, that these people are not ungrateful. We just saw in verse 11, right, that they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And then the second part of the verse, all the people shouted with a great shout. So they are praising God. They're thankful to God that this is being done. So before we get into the crying part, we need to recognize that they are not being ungrateful. I think their crying is more out of disappointment. These are not tears of joy. These are people who had, notice in the text, verse 12, it says they had seen, in the middle of the verse, old men who had seen the first temple. Which temple was that? It was Solomon's temple. Was there ever a greater temple than Solomon's temple? No. And this one paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. Maybe the size was much smaller. Maybe, maybe they, they didn't use the best... Uh, the, the best materials. But whatever the case, these old men had seen what it looked like before. Solomon's temple in all of its glory. Just 50 years earlier, it was standing. Maybe they were part of that last wave of people who had been brought over. And so, in their 60s now, they remember back from when they were teenagers seeing that temple. And now, not quite the same. And their weeping was so loud that you couldn't distinguish. Their weeping from the shouts of joy, verse 13 tells us. In addition to the foundation not being up to the standards of Solomon's temple, the temple was still in ruins. You need to keep in mind. The, the temple is still in ruins. It's not like you know, they just cleared everything off. And, and The temple is still a huge mess. And there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no symbol of God's presence like He would come down in the glory cloud. And so it's much different from when they had left. It was far removed from where they were. And to add to that, this process was not going to be easy. In chapter 4, we see that there is ongoing opposition. Not, not just this initial success. This is great that God is leading them in this way, restoring the sacrifices, restoring the, the temple to where it should be but they're going to be met with much opposition. And so chapter 4 here gives us a summary of the various plots against the Jews to stop the rebuilding of the temple. And so this whole chapter takes place over 22 years. And, and this is actually broken up into three sections, 
three sections, and each section is is um, in chapter four is marked off by the phrase "in the days of" or "in the reign of," and that that's how it kind of clues us into the idea that we're moving to a different time period. So at the beginning, we have this current time when they had just returned back of the second year. Here's this initial opposition that comes, and then in verse four. Notice, then the people of the land. Uh, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus. So that leads us to a different time period than what we're talking about here. Okay, We're not talking about the 500s now. We move on to the time of King Ahasuerus. And then, uh, and then uh, again in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. Now we move into the 400s B.C. And so we move to a different time period. So what you need to recognize is that What's going to happen here in verses 1 through 5, we have a continuation of what we've been looking at in chapter 3 chronologically. And then it it gives us a little bit of a a window into what's going to happen for the next several years, the next several decades really, in verses 6 to 23. And then verse 24 picks back up to where we were uh, in chapter 3, which is back in the second year of their return. And so I'll try to explain that here as we go. But what we see here in this first opposition, opposition during the reign of Cyrus, verses 1 to 5. Opposition during the reign of Cyrus, verses 1 to 5. And there are two types of opposition, and this is the same sort of thing that you see in your own spiritual life or in business or in any any type of um, uh, compartment of life that you, you have. You have either covert opposition or you have overt opposition. And that's what these Jews have with this rebuilding of the temple. The covert opposition, think hidden, uh, secret, and that's what happens in verses 1 through 3. Notice it says there, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, we seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. So you have these, notice verse 1, enemies of Judah and Benjamin, and they come to them and say, hey, we want to worship your same God. Please help. let us help you. Let us help you with the rebuilding of your temple. But Zerubbabel sees right through it, and so does Jeshua, verse 3. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The enemies of the Jews were threatening, uh, were threatened by the rebuilding of this temple. You know, you have these people who really, they do have some right to this land because God has given them the right to this land. And they come back after being gone for 50 to 70 years. And now these people who were former inhabitants or, or current inhabitants there are threatened by them. But instead of coming in with chariots and swords, they come with wit and charm in verse 2. And they say, you know, we, we want to worship your God too. They want to, we want to help restore your temple. We, we, we worship the same God. And just by... A word of wisdom, anytime you have a pagan seeking to worship God, it's not a good thing. King Herod, remember, was visited by the wise men in Matthew 1, and he said to them, 
you know, when you find the Christ, let me know so that I too may worship Him. True motives or false motives, right? We know exactly what He was doing. He didn't want to worship the Christ. He wanted to kill Him. And so beware when God-haters seek to worship God and show no sign of repentance. And the reason we need to be careful is that all worship is not true worship. All worship is not true worship. And even not all worship to the true God is true worship. Not all worship to the true God is acceptable. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua recognized this. He knew that these guys were uh, Assyrians and Sumerians and that they were polytheists. That they believed in the worship of many gods. And that they were willing to add this God of Jerusalem to their pantheon of gods. You know, it's like a, their whole mantle's full of gods. And they'll say, hey, we'll take your God and we'll put him up on there too. Zerubbabel and Jeshua recognized this. I mean, if they were really serious about worshiping the true God in the proper way, then they would have come to faith in God and in His promised Redeemer. And they, in order to do that, would have had to repent of their sins as displayed in the Jewish sacrifices for the Old Testament person. And they would have to abandon all of their other gods for the worship and the service of the one and only true and living God. But they did not do that. They said, hey, we would love to serve your God with you. These two leaders of the Jews recognized what was going on. But you can also imagine how difficult this must have been for these Jewish leaders to turn these men down, right? I mean, the easiest thing for them to do in this situation was what? It was to make some new friends, to turn some people who were enemies into friends and say, yes, that is so nice of you. Please come in and help us. We would love for you to worship our God. You know, if they're going to be a problem, if they're really not genuine about it, then we'll deal with that problem later. But you know what tends to happen when we allow in people like that? The problem tends to get worse, doesn't it? And it's a lot harder to deal with later on down the road than if we would have just taken a stand when we recognized that they were not coming to serve the one and true living God. These people were pantheists. They served multiple gods and were not serious about the soul worship of our God. Well, Israel was not willing to compromise on this. And the reason for this, I think, is because they remembered their own history. Do you remember what happened the first time that Israel took possession of the land of Canaan? They failed to drive out all the Canaanites, didn't they? Joshua comes in, goes through this great conquest, and he says, listen, here's your land. This is your property given to you by God. And some of them came to them to Joshua and said, but we've still got some Canaanites here. We don't really have that much room to live. And Joshua said, that's because you haven't driven out the Canaanites. Drive them out. Kill them all. Hey, they're opposing God. And if you end up uh, allowing them to stay, you will become like them. In fact, what they would end up doing was they would marry these Canaanites and worship their gods. And we have the book of Judges, which is a 400 400-year period of misery that the Jews put themselves through because they were not willing to drive out the Canaanites in the first place. And I think these Jews here, these Jewish leaders, recognized that history. They also recognized that more recently, the reason that they were led into captivity that they're in the first place was because their fathers and grandfathers had fallen into syncretism. That is, the mixing 
of worshiping the true God with the mixing mixing that with worshiping false gods. You know, God doesn't really need exclusive worship. We'll worship Him and all these other gods as well. We'll kind of mix their kind of uh, traditions in with our traditions and so on. And I think these Jewish leaders recognize that. This is the reason we went into exile. We're not going to allow them to come into our camp and, and destroy us from, from within. They were not allowing, going to allow that syncretism to happen again because they were committed to the exclusive worship of God. The problem with these opponents was that they were more concerned about themselves and their power and their control rather than really concerned about the work of God and unity and purity of worshiping God. I wonder how you view ministry at this church. Do you see it as a means to an unrighteous end so that you can be acknowledged by people or so you that you can get more power and control? Or are you most concerned about the ministry actually being done even if it's not being done by you and being seen to be done by you? If That you're more concerned about ministry being done to the glory of God. Do you pursue opportunities in this church for your own sake? Or do you do it for the sake of this church? If you want to check your heart with regard to how you view these things, I think you just ask yourself this question. How do I respond when someone else gets an opportunity for ministry that I wanted to get? How do I respond when someone else gets an opportunity for ministry that I wanted to get? If you respond with frustration and anger and envy and strife, then you're not concerned about the church primarily. You're concerned about what this is going to do to advance you. But if instead you see someone else get an opportunity for ministry that you wanted, you become thankful that the ministry is being done and that God is using someone else And I think you're more concerned about the church than you are about even your own advancement. These people here, these opponents, were not concerned about the work of God. They were concerned about themselves and and trying to advance their agenda. Well, Zerubbabel knew that if he let them rebuild the temple, he would not have been able to prevent them from worshiping with them. So, you know, wait a second. We've done all this work with you. You allowed us to do all this work and now you're not going to let us worship with you? Zerubbabel knew that the best way to stop this opposition was to cut it off before it began. And they use Cyrus as a reason for why they're doing it this way at the end of verse 3. We ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus has commanded us. Listen, he told us Jews to do it, so we don't feel bad about excluding you. What was the result of the Jews who refused to compromise in their worship of the true God? What was the result of all this? I mean, you you look at them and you admire these men, these leaders, and say, yes, good job, you stopped the opposition before it started, before it could get too far out of hand. And we would say, how is God going to reward them for this? We would expect some great tangible reward that would would, um, promote them and and, uh, show them how great of a deed they did. But you know how God rewarded them with their stand? Verses 4 and 5 tell us with more opposition. More opposition. You know, this world is no friend of grace. 
It's not going to pat you on the back when you take a stand for God, when you are faithful to God. And this world will not go away after you've made a stand for God. You know, I've, I've made my stand. This was hard. I didn't want to do it. It would have been easier for me to give in, but I didn't. I stood my ground. And so I think God's going to respond to me by removing all opposition. You know what happens when you stand up to the opposition against God? You often get more. And it's not. it's less covert, isn't it? It's more overt. And that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. It turns into overt opposition by the same people. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it moves from covert opposition, hey, we want to worship your God, to overt opposition. Listen, these people need to stop. And we're going to try to put this into law so that our rulers will stop them from building this temple. They frightened them. They probably frightened them, verse 4, physically, or discouraged them, the word discouraged, and then frightened them from building, probably physically by threatening battle. They also turned, in verse 5, to governing officials, probably through bribes, you know, paying the governors to say, hey, can you make it more difficult for these people to do this work? And this would go on. This is not something that just happened one time. It would go on, it says in verse 5, throughout all the days of Cyrus, all the way to the time of Darius, these opponents were in their face making it difficult for them to finish the work of God. Now before we see how this turns out, which we'll see that in verse 24, we need to see two other time periods during the rebuilding of the temple that also received great opposition. First, or, or second, first one is opposition during the reign of Cyrus. Second, opposition during the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, verse 6. Opposition during the reign of Xerxes. Xerxes, you remember, is the same king that, that we learned about in the book of Esther. He was the one who, who got rid of Vashti, his queen, and then brought in uh, these other ladies to determine which one would be the best, and Esther to, turned out to be that one. Well, during the reign of Xerxes, here in verse 6, the threats against the Jews who were rebuilding the temple did not stop. Notice verse 6. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So, so what's happening is these enemies of the Jews are writing letters to the governors to make it more difficult for the Jews to continue their work. Now, this took place uh, several decades later. Uh, probably 40 or 50 years later than what we read about in verses 1 to 5. The third time period of opposition that's recorded is found in verses 7 to 23, and that is opposition during the reign of Artaxerxes. You see that marked off in the first line of verse 7. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tebiel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. We see the authors of the letter here, Rehum, in verse 8, Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe. They wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. And in the letter, verses uh, 9 through 11, they basically introduce themselves, tell them who they are. And then here's the content of the letter in verses 11 uh, to 16. The second part of verse 11 reads, To King Artaxerxes, your servants, 
the men in the region beyond the river, that's the trans-Euphrates area, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. And they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So what we need to know here is that at this time period, here in the, the early 500s B.C., this is actually referring to a time period that's after the temple has already been rebuilt. Okay, so the temple's... Uh, you know, we've been looking at in chapters 3 and the first part of chapter 4 where they just got the bronze altar up and the foundation laid. That was it. Now, here in chapters uh, 4, verse 7 and following, we have where the temple's being rebuilt and the only thing left to do is build up the city walls, the Jerusalem city walls. And so that's what they're trying to stop. They're saying, if you go through this final step, it's going to be detrimental to your leadership as ruler. Verse 13, Now let it be known to the king, that if that city is rebuilt rebuilt, and the walls are finished, they, the, the Jews, they're not going to pay tribute or taxes, custom or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the king. So do you see why this would appeal to the king? King Artaxerxes, this is going to affect your pocketbook because once they set up these walls, they're not paying any taxes. Verse 14, Now because we are in the service of the palace, and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, Therefore, we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record book of your fathers. And you will discover in those record books and you'll learn that the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, these Jews, they are a rebellious city and they, they do damage to kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within it in the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. Listen, go back to the record books. These Jews are rebellious people. They don't like to pay their taxes. They like to revolt against the government. Go look. Why do you think that's not going to happen again? Verse 16, We informed the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Don't expect to get anything from that city once they finish those walls. So here's what we're asking you to do. Stop the rebuilding of this temple. Okay? King Artaxerxes, tear down these walls, right? I mean, it, it can't happen can affect you significantly. Well, here's what happens in verses 17 to 22. The king responds. He sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. And he says this, Peace, and now, verse 18, the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have been perpetuated in it. Or excuse me, per- perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. What was the matter they were supposed to carry out? Stop the rebuilding of the temple. Don't, don't, don't stop in doing this. Why? Uh, end of verse 22. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Listen, you wrote me a letter saying you're concerned about me and my pocketbook and why would you not go through with this decree that I'm giving to you which is to stop the work on the temple? Literally, verse 23. Uh, 
Notice verse 23. Then as soon as the copy of the King Artaxerxes document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arm. Or in other words, they made them cease by force and by might. They physically removed them and prevented them from restoring those walls. That happened during the time of King Artaxerxes in the 500s B.C. So now, Ezra goes back to the time that we were looking at in chapter 3, and we see, we see that in chapter 4, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this is a continuation of verse 5. Remember that the people there had discouraged them and frightened them and sent letters to the governors to tell them to stop, and so they're still at the place where they've only got the foundation laid, and the work comes to a stop. And it wouldn't restart for another 16 years until the reign of King Darius in the second year. Our progress in God's work is often interrupted by external opposition. Three principles to consider this morning. Number one, perseverance in the work of God is not for sissies. Perseverance in the work of God is not for sissies. The Jews would have faced the regular temptation of giving up on the work of the temple. There were just too many things stacked against them, right? It was a huge project. The work was demanding. It was time-consuming. It was expensive. On top of that, they were outnumbered. Their opposition seemed to never go on vacation. It didn't matter which generation of people it was. It was just constant opposition. And so the temptation to stop was very big. Maybe it was because the Jews came back without properly estimating their enemies. Maybe they thought that they would be welcomed with red carpets and a, a huge welcome home party and a huge welcome sign, right? Maybe they, un, they underestimated the severity of their enemies. In a similar way, perseverance in the life of a Christian for us is going to be severe. We need to take into account who our enemies are. It is no easy... It is no easy task to follow Christ on to glory. And, and let me just tell you that our enemies are not flesh and blood. Okay? Our, our enemies are the rulers of the powers of this world, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It is the system of this world's system that is opposed to God. It is our own flesh. It is Satan. Those are our enemies. And we cannot underestimate the power of our enemies. We have to be realistic about the opposition that is all around us. We cannot just say, well, those problems don't exist. I'm just going to keep moving on. Because we will be opposed many times covertly and other times overtly that this world system is opposed to God. And we cannot underestimate the power of our enemies. But there's a worse danger than us underestimating the power of our enemies. And that's underestimating the power of our God. And that leads us to the second principle. Perseverance in the work of God demands that we, re we rely on Him for help. Perseverance in the work of God demands that we rely on Him for help. The work of the temple would not resume until the second year of Darius. And that wouldn't restart until God would send two prophets to speak to the people of Jerusalem, Haggai and Zechariah. And one of the classic lines that God uses through the prophet Zechariah, it's found in Zechariah 4.6. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by My Spirit, says the Lord. 
This rebuilding of the temple is not going to happen through your own effort. It's going to happen through My power, My Spirit. Perseverance only happens when we rely on Him for help. We may have serious threat from our enemies. We have, may have clear and present danger as we seek to do God's work. But friends, God is on our side. That's what we were saying earlier. Who is on the Lord's side? Right? Paul read earlier from Revelation 13, who is like the beast? Who can come up against him? And then we sing the next, we sing the next song, which is, who's on the Lord's side? We have the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords on our side. And His hand is on us, as I pointed out last week in Ezra 7 and 8. Thirdly, third principle, perseverance in the work of God focuses on the end goal more than the immediate opposition. Perseverance in the work of God focuses on the end goal more than immediate opposition. For the Jews that had come to realize prior to their return from Babylon and then after the prophets reminded them, they had to know that there was nothing more important than worshiping God. And that's why they had the initial success. They had their their eyes fixed on the end goal. We want to see worship restored at this temple. But then the opposition comes. And it keeps coming. And it doesn't stop. And it's easy for us to get our eyes off of that goal. Of, I, need to, I need to improve my worship of God. I need to continue in the work of God. And we get our eyes on all the opposition that's around us. I can't do anything. I feel restricted. I, I, I can't do what I need to do. Do you, do you fear society around you? Are you afraid of what can happen to you if our government spirals out of control and is taken over by a ruthless foreign power? Are you fearful of what man can do to you? Are you afraid that our enemies will win? And this is why the Jews must be commended in chapter 3, verse 3, because because of the fear of their enemies, they built the altar. Because of the fear that you have for all the things that are going on around you, you turn to God. That's the answer. When we fear, that's the best time to turn to God for help because the end goal is that we'll be able to see God's face one day. We will have fullness of joy and blessings forevermore and we can't get there without God. Focus on the eternal. Keep your eyes fixed on the eternal, not the temporal opposition because this momentary and light affliction will produce in you an eternal weight of glory. Father, thankful for the positive example of the Jews that help us to see that, that we need to keep our eyes fixed on the, on the goal, but also the, the, uh, the negative example that helps us to see what not to do. It's very easy to give in and to forget about the importance of Your work, accomplishing Your work, advancing Your work, and, and we can, can uh, give up for a time. We need to hear Your Word freshly. We need like the Jews, to hear from, uh, from Your voice. Like You sent Haggai and, and Zechariah and even Ezra later in chapter 7 to speak to the people and reform them from within. Because there are great oppositions all around us and as we'll see later in the book, there are even oppositions within our own hearts. That, that we have this danger of turning away from You. And so we need to be reformed from within. We need to have our eyes fixed on the proper goal. Lord, give us the strength to continue on, to persevere till the end in Your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.